So I'd very much like to welcome you to this retreat. Uh, you can hear me and not overhear me. Um, and for those of you who are new here, a very warm welcome to Gaia House. And I hope that you will feel very welcomed here and very much at home. And I'd like to, for those of you who haven't met, I'm Christina Feldman. And this weekend also Caroline will be helping on the retreat. I'm very happy to have her here. So this weekend, um, I'd like to really focus the teaching and the practice um, very much upon the exploration of how to integrate both insight meditation and loving-kindness meditation. And over the weekend, I'll obviously be... um, giving quite a bit of input and instruction about that. But this evening, I'd like to begin by reading to you a poem by Naomi Shihabnai. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Now I wanted to start this weekend with this poem because I feel... It speaks so clearly both to the essence of meditation practice, but because it also speaks so clearly to, I think, what each one of us really longs for in this life, how to live with kindness, to understand kindness, 
how to know how to bring that quality of kindness into our relationship with ourselves and how to have that very profound quality of kindness as the bedrock of all of our relationships with other people, with all the moments that we engage with the world. So this evening I'd like to begin this evening really by speaking about the, the art of meditation practice. I think it is very true to say that meditation practice, that mindfulness, really has two aspects. And one aspect is the craft, and the other aspect is the art. One aspect is the form, and the other aspect is the spirit. And certainly in my understanding, these two aspects need to be so deeply interwoven. I think it's very important to remember that the Buddha didn't just teach formal meditation practice. Really, what he taught was the cultivation of an awakened life in which formal meditation practice certainly occupies a very deeply important and central position. But that formal meditation practice, for it to be something alive and vital and creative, really needs to be in a dialogue with the rest of what is called the Eightfold Path. And the noble Eightfold Path, or the teaching that encourages us to live a noble life, the noble Eightfold Path is something that embraces the whole of our lives and is really an encouragement to bring kindness and wakefulness into the whole of that life. So formal meditation practice is in truth in dialogue with wise speech, with wise action, with wise livelihood, with wise effort, with wise concentration, wise mindfulness, wise intention, wise view. That all of this is really describing the kind of an all-embracing path in which nothing, no aspect of our life and no aspect of our own being lies untouched. Now, 2,600 years ago, you know, people came to the Buddha with pretty much the same dilemmas that we all face in our own lives. You know, how do we meet the realities of aging, of sickness, of of death? How do we meet the painfulness of loss, of confusion and despair? People came to the Buddha asking, you know, what do I do with this mind that can feel so tormented and confused? Now, interestingly, when people came to the Buddha with these dilemmas, his answer to those questions was never just to say, sit more. 
You know, in fact, you know, Ajahn Chah, who's one of the teachers, one of the great teachers of the past in the forest tradition, you know, tells tells a story of a monk in his a Western monk in his monastery who who came to Ajahn Chah with so much frustration and complaining about the fact that, you know, he had to do all this business all day long of meeting with villagers and, you know, doing funerals and rituals and, you know, going on begging around and he said, Ajahn Chah, in fact, my life is so busy, I don't even have time to sit enough, you know, and I'm not making any progress, and I won't make any progress until I get to sit more. And Ajahn Chah's answer to him, you know, is to say, you know, I've seen many a chicken who sits a great deal, but have yet to meet an enlightened chicken. You know, and the Buddha really answered very much in the same kind of spirit. You know, when he, when people came to him with the dilemmas, which are quite timeless and universal, the questions we all face in our life, the the questions we all bring to ourselves and others as we look for ways, really, to live a, a very meaningful, embodied, creative, clear, compassionate life. The Buddha's answer to those questions and dilemmas was always to investigate, to investigate, to look more closely, to look beneath the surface of things, to question, and and to question in every moment what are the causes of suffering and what is the end of suffering, moment to moment. And he really spoke about the path to an awakened life and a path to the end of suffering as a noble life. And a noble life that is really born of cultivating inwardly all that is healing, liberating, kind, skillful, and learning to understand and to let go of everything that ties us to confusion or conflict or to struggle. To learn how to let go of everything that in some, in many ways harms or undermines our own capacities for kindness, for compassion. Now, one of the I think one of the blessings, one of the kind of pieces of genius of the Buddha was he laid out this very clear path that was as practical and applicable 2,600 years ago as it is today. And he spoke about the building blocks of an awakened life. And he said that the first of those building blocks is what in Pali is called dana, translated as generosity. And when he was speaking about generosity, he wasn't just speaking about material generosity. He was speaking about the, the, the freedom and openness of heart that comes with being generous with our, our time, our attention, our patience, our tolerance, our kindness, our compassion, being generous with our willingness to be present and to be mindful. And he he spoke about how that cultivation of of generosity really allowed this this quality of integrity or sila to arise. 
and in fact, and Caroline will speak about this in a moment, but when the Buddha spoke about integrity, he still spoke about it as the cultivation of thoughts and acts and words of loving kindness. And then, and then he made this very direct link between integrity and um, samatha, or all the styles of meditation, but more than that, the link between integrity and the capacity for us to discover a mind that really is at ease with itself and at ease with the world, the, the cultivation of a mind that is collected, gathered, calm, serene, that knows how to rest in a sense of quietude and clarity. And he spoke about that, how that samatha is in itself the kind of building block or the foundation of understanding and of insight. And he made this kind of developmental path something very clear. Now we know, I think any of you who have ever meditated before or attempted to practice before, really know this is not such an easy journey all the time. I mean, it's pretty hard even to sit with ourselves for five minutes. You know? And it's sometimes said, you know, like the road to enlightenment is not paved. And I think, goodness me, we all know the bumpiness of this road. You know, how, how deeply challenging it can be to be awake in our lives. How deeply challenging it can be to really stay close to those intentions that we so cherish. To be kind, to be present, to be connected, to be mindful. But the nobility that the Buddha spoke about, he didn't actually ever talk about this as some future destination living on some distant horizon. He really spoke about the nobility of the path, really lying in the willingness to embrace the bumpiness of the road. To really ask what it is that we are cultivating Are we conscious in that cultivation to know what it is that we are nurturing and what it is that we are committed to in our lives? Sometimes the the Buddha often said or described this as a path of loveliness. He said this path is one that is lovely in the beginning and lovely in the middle and lovely in the end. And certainly for many years in my practice, I really puzzled over that one. You know, and I thought, what on earth is it talking about? You know, and any of you who have ever, ever practiced before, it knows that this path can be pretty challenging and hard in the beginning. It can sometimes feel pretty miserable in the middle, and sometimes it's lovely at the end, but I think the loveliness in the end sometimes is just a relief that it's kind of over, you know, or a retreat is over. But I think it's a very important reflection, actually, to bring into the practice. Because I know, you know, we can so transfer patterns of our lives into meditation practice and into retreats. And especially, you know, with our incredible work ethics, you know, and 
you know, orientation around progress and getting somewhere and pushing and striving, it's very easy to transfer all of that into meditation practice. And when we do that, we can be pretty sure it ain't going to be lovely. You know, it's going to be pretty hard. So I think the loveliness, the loveliness is something to really reflect on. What is it that allows it to be lovely just to sit in quietude for half an hour? What is it that allows it to be lovely, really to be present in your body, your mind, no matter how they are, unconditionally? What is it that would make it lovely really to be present in your life no matter how challenging or wild or chaotic it may feel to be? What is it that would make that lovely? And when the Buddha was speaking about the loveliness of the path, he was not just speaking about the landscape that we're occupying. He wasn't speaking about either the outer landscape or the contents, the features of the inner landscape that we're occupying. When you're speaking about the loveliness, he was really speaking that the loveliness of this path, the loveliness of this practice, is so related to our attitude and our intention. And I, I think it is so, so important to stay connected with and attuned to what kind of attitude, what kind of intention we're bringing to this exploration, that we're bringing to this retreat, that we bring to every moment. Because our attitude and our intention is really what, in a way, informs our experience. It will inform our practice, our sitting and our walking. But it's also true that a very conscious attitude and intention is actually what gives a sense of direction to this path and practice. Now, in many ways, when the Buddha spoke about intentions and the kind of intentions that it's important to bring to this practice and actually to this life, He got actually really, really simple around that. And he said, you know, there are three wise intentions. There are three wise intentions that lead to a noble life. That there's three wise intentions that awaken and liberate our hearts. That there are three wise intentions that really bring about that sense of freedom and ease in our lives. And he said, one of them is renunciation, one of them is loving kindness, and one of them is compassion. Now, I do think it's really helpful, often very helpful, to really reflect on that. I mean, I know renunciation is not a word that most people feel very easy with. You know, sometimes when I speak, I, I teach in, in cultures that don't speak English, you know, where English is not the first language, and they're, they're endeavoring to translate renunciation you know and struggling often I say you know it's not a problem you know it's not even a word we use in English you know never mind in any other language 
Because, you know, it doesn't it, what does it do? You know, renunciation, people tell me it's a word that sends shivers up their spine, you know, and they, they sort of imagine this sort of bereft, cold, deprived, depressed life, you know, and they're a renunciate toughing it out in a sort of Himalayan cave or sort of boot camp life, you know, bereft of joy or happiness. I mean, curiously, you know, in this teaching, renunciation is used actually very differently than that. The renunciation is actually speaking about as an antidote to suffering. The renunciation is one of the most sort of direct doorways to freedom and to kindness. And what is it, you know, you have to ask, what is it renunciation of? You know, because I'd really encourage you to naturalize the word, you know, to get interested in the word and what it means. What is it renunciation of? It's not renunciation of life, you know. There's no encouragement in this teaching, you know, to sort of divorce your partners, you know, put your children in care, you know, sell your house, you know, and, you know, give everything you own to a charity shop. I'm speaking about that. We speak about really the renunciation of everything that causes us to suffer and feel contracted and constricted. Really speaking about the renunciation of clinging and holding and grasping and selfing, which is really the renunciation of suffering. And that was what was really the encouragement to investigate, that renunciation is actually a practice of freedom. And it's a practice of happiness. And I always think of renunciation as actually something, you know, because I know in Western practice we often use the word letting go rather than renunciation because people are so horrified by the word, you know. But I actually think renunciation is actually something more than letting go. Because I feel renunciation is like, it's like a commitment of our hearts. It's like what we are committed to. It's like a commitment of the heart to freedom, a commitment of the heart to compassion, a commitment of the heart to to spaciousness and to ease. And he said, you know, the Buddha talked about renunciation as something we really practice. It's again, it's not a destination. It's something that we practice that kind of commitment to freedom, moment to moment. The second of the intentions that I really would like to focus on quite a lot this weekend is the intention of of kindness. The intention of kindness. And the whole development and emphasis on, on kindness in this teaching is really taught and practiced as an antidote to ill will an antidote to the aversion that can so much scar our relationship to ourselves in the form of judgment and belittlement and diminishing and blaming, comparing. But it is also an antidote to the ill will that so scars our world. The way that fear is kind of practiced, the way that mistrust, suspicion, anger, hatred, so much damage our world, our planet. And the Buddha spoke about kindness as being the guardian of our hearts and the guardian of our world. And of course we would all love, you know, to have this kind of 
bountiful kindness available to us, and yet we know that it actually is is often it, it's it can't just be left to an accidental moment we stumble across. There is something about learning to cultivate and nurture and care for our own capacities for kindness and applying that kindness to all those moments where there is ill will or aversion. And this is swimming against the tide, but it's always, it's always taught in this tradition that it is learning to swim against the tide. And often we're swimming against the tide of our own internal habits. And perhaps some of those internal habits of, of harshness that is directed inwardly. And the third of the intentions, compassion. Compassion as the antidote to our, our, our fear of really being with life as it is, including all of the difficulty and struggle that life holds. Learning to hold suffering, not with fear or resistance or blame, but with a trembling heart. The capacity for tremendous and profound compassion. With these kind of wise intentions that I would really like to explore over the weekend, you know, we are cultivating that which is lovely. We're cultivating a mind that is lovely, a heart that is lovely, cultivating our own capacities to, to really sense that nobility throughout our lives. And it's a training, it's a training. In many ways, that's why we call this a path, because it is, it is truly a training. Um, so, maybe, Caroline, would you just like to speak? Uh, we'll just talk a little bit about some of the guidelines of the retreat. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, great. So um, I'd like to uh, speak fairly briefly about um, the five precepts, which I think you've already heard about uh, from the coordinator. Um, And really, as Christina was saying... um, the practice of kindness, um, which is really a way of summing up these precepts, is uh, uh, very much at the heart of everything that the Buddha taught. And so when we take up these precepts, when we open ourselves to really considering them, And when we uh, find ways of really uh, acting on them, on retreat, in our lives, we are bringing goodness into the world. We're bringing into being qualities that 
we really need and that the world needs. So to really know that um, these, uh, these precepts, these guidelines are um, what really uh, helps to create and sustain the community that we are here at Gaia House. Right. For this weekend, um, we join a whole community of people across time and through space and here in this house, the staff, the coordinators, work and personal retreatants, trustees, volunteers, many, many people. And for this time, we are part of this great community of practice and following the precepts and taking up these uh, guidelines are ways that we create and yeah and, and take care of this this precious place this uh, container for uh, for practice a place where we can then uh, find um, room to breathe, to rest, to explore, to deepen, to find out what it is we we most deeply value in our in our life. So in following these precepts, which I will go through again, <laughs> um, we're really offering, really offering a gift to ourselves and, and to others and to the world. And um, I'd really like to encourage you to uh, reflect on a sense of how, how one relates to, to hearing about these, these precepts or these guidelines, I think. Sometimes there can be, you know, I'm being told what to do, I'm not going to, you know, and uh, it can trigger off uh, senses of judgment about oneself or others and ideas of right and wrong and shoulds and shouldn'ts and commandments. And so just to really notice sort of what's around in the response and, and to, I uh, would suggest it's really helpful to see them as. Uh, invitations to exploration, to reflection, and to really, to really see them, and to find out is to find out for ourselves if it really is true that they are a real support to happiness. You know, to our own happiness. Uh, they're not, as a friend describes them, killjoy ethics. You know, killjoy precepts. They are actually about. Uh, happiness, and to find out for ourselves, you know, if that if that is the case. Um, so I'd like to share with you um, uh, these uh, wording for these precepts that I will put on the board. So um, afterwards, and just uh, comment a little on e- on each one. Um, so the first, the first one is, I undertake the training 
to refrain from harming living creatures. I undertake the training to practice compassionate action. So you can hear in the first preset, there's the, the, the element of, of refraining, a restraint of what we're not doing. And then there's the element of cultivation, of, of in a way what we're doing instead. So the opportunities on a retreat, in our meditation practice, for compassionate action are many. So I'm sure as we move through the weekend, um, I'll find opportunities for this in, in, in small ways, um, perhaps larger ways, as we face what we face in, in our own uh, processes. And just in living together and sharing space in the house and how much we can, uh, in the silence, even uh, communicate our sense of care for each other. And as we, you know, find a little spider in the corner when we're doing our cleaning, and just to include that little being in our practice and, you know, kind of usher it outside rather than squashing it. In all these small ways we, we learn, we learn. And we cultivate. Um, so that's the first one. Secondly, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the training to practice contentment. And so that we give each other this uh, um, uh, space where we know we, we can leave our things and, and nobody's going to take them. How wonderful that we can that we can live that out together here. Um, we can see how that how that feels to both offer that and receive that. And we can practice contentment in a somewhat simplified environment, perhaps especially for people for whom retreat forms such as this may be new. There's many things in a sense that we do without here. And uh just to, to, to really be able to uh, appreciate the, what is offered and to begin to see how much actually that is. <coughs> then um, I undertake the training to refrain from sexual activity and I undertake the training to practice responsibility in all my relationships. So in the context of retreat, refraining from sexual activity... And um, in a way, an opportunity to um, uh, relate in a way to ourselves and to others here in a, in a more simple way. Can we, uh, in that sense, be able to uh, just see each other as just other human beings together here and simplify some of that? way in which we can be evaluating ourselves and others in, in different ways and to really give ourselves and others that space to, to be uh, in a simpler way. And then I undertake the training to refrain from harmful speech. I undertake the training to practice noble silence 
I think uh, Christina will say uh, more about um, that one. And lastly, I undertake the training to refrain from use of intoxicants. I undertake the training to care for my body and my mind. Um, so specifically with, with this one, uh, yeah, taking the opportunity again to simplify, to refrain from uh, any, any kind of drugs or alcohol. But um, if you are uh, on taking prescribed medication, please to continue uh, taking your medication as normal. And to really embrace this uh, weekend as an, an opportunity again to explore and to, to tune into what that might mean to care for my body and my mind. Just a couple more little sort of practical things. Actually, they, they look little, but they're not that little. First of all, I really encourage you um, to embrace the simplicity of a retreat. You know, you don't have to make a lot of plans once you get here. You've done all the planning you needed to do. You know, you actually arrived. Um, now you don't have to make a lot of plans about the day. You know, it, one of the great beauties of it, think of a retreat is that you can so simplify you know give yourself a break from busyness really let this whole weekend be a busyness break you know you don't even have to think about what comes next you know a bell goes you know just follow whatever everybody else is going you know somebody knows where they're going <laughs> but give yourself a break from busyness and just let yourself simplify simplify and in some ways, I know we think that would be such a blessed relief, especially for those of you who live very complex and demanding lives. You know, you think, oh, I can hardly wait to get to a retreat, you know, where I don't have to do so much. And then many people tell me they get here and that lasts for about five minutes. And then the habit of doing and the habit of busyness kicks in, you know, and you think about all the things I'm missing, you know, my books and my, you know, this and that and the activity. It takes, it takes a, a little time to calm down. It takes a little time to calm down. But be patient with that. You know, that the habit of, the momentum almost of busyness, it lingers for a little time. But it will pass if you don't feed it. I mean, you can see, you know, that in terms of, as far as entertainment goes, this, quite frankly, is as good as it gets. You know, there, there is no more. Um, so practicing that contentment and that simplicity, really finding that. And part of that is, of course, the silence. I mean, probably all of you know that all retreats here at Gaia House are really held in a in an environment of, of really pretty much complete silence, but also noble silence. And the reason it's called noble silence is because it's not punitive. It's not about withdrawal of affection or connection. 
it's noble because it's really each one of us providing the space and the support for each of us to explore our own pathway, our own journey, and to learn how to listen inwardly. And part of that noble silence, if I might mention, it would be such a gift to yourself to surrender your mobile phone. You know, really seriously turn it off. You know, if you can't resist it, give it to me. I'll look after it. I'll babysit it for you for the weekend. You know, it's really, you know, and I, and I make a sort of joke about this, but in, it, part of it I find kind of heartbreaking too. You know, it's not many years ago, really, where people would come on retreats and they didn't have mobile phones. And if you really, really had to make a phone call, you'd go out into that freezing cold shed in the courtyard, you know, with your 10p pieces, you know, that, and the phone would charge you so much money that everybody kept those urgent phone calls to a minimum. It's really different now. So, you know, here, I think now in the time when almost, well, I guess everybody has a mobile phone, you know, the, the sense of, of being, the fear of being disengaged can be so strong. You know, my colleagues laugh at me, you know, because whenever, you know, every retreat we ask people to put their mobiles away. And then, of course, you know, I would see people down the road with their mobiles out or texting under the sheets in their bedroom, you know. And, and I go through the house and I have this little sort of huff, you know, and I say, they're cheating themselves. They're cheating themselves. And that, but I really feel that because there is something, you know, that when the Buddha talked about this path, talked about disentangle and establish yourself in mindfulness and solitude. And there's, it's such a gift to yourself to do that just for a couple of days. So not, you know, cheating yourself of that capacity really to be so wholehearted. So tonight, if you need to sign off, you know, let people know, you know, you're out of town. You know, the phone's off. Make sure they have the number here if they need to in case an emergency. Really try it, just to really settle into, into the silence, to collect, to gather ourselves. To collect, to gather ourselves in that climate of kindness. So I'd like to end the evening with a short sitting, but before we do that, you might want to take a moment or two to stand up and stretch your legs.
So if you find a posture for yourself that feels as alert and balanced as it can be, on a chair, on a bench, on the floor, it really doesn't matter. And this evening I'd just like to just introduce just really quite a short sitting because I know many of you have been traveling today and are probably weary. So taking a few moments just to settle into your body. Finding a posture that feels (coughs) upright. An expression of alertness, attentiveness. And yet your body also feels just as relaxed and as balanced as you can be. And bringing really quite a calm, gentle attentiveness into your body. Just being aware in your body if there are any places of tightness, holding, tension in your shoulders, in your face, in your hands. And just quite consciously just Softening those areas, relaxing them, letting your shoulders drop, so letting your your chest you be quite open, your shoulders back a little. Just being aware of the touch of the air on your skin, all the places where your body is touching the ground or the cushion or the chair. Just being mindful of the sense of warmth or pressure in those areas. Being aware of all the different sensations present within your body. The life of your body. And expanding the field of your attention for a few moments Just being aware of listening, of resting in the quietude. The sounds that arise and pass.
Being mindful of a sense of spaciousness, space around you. And being mindful of your mind in this moment, your heart, the thoughts, the feelings, the images that are there. Also, <coughs> allowing them just to appear and to fade away, not holding anywhere, not being lost. cultivating a sense of ease, interest, kindness within your mind, however it is. Bringing your mind, your attention into your body, being mindful of your body breathing. Just being sensing incoming breaths, your outgoing breath. And breathing in, calming the body. Breathing out, calming the body. Breathing in, calming the mind. Breathing out, calming the mind. Just as much as you're able, cultivating moment to moment, calm, clear attentiveness.
Senior mindfulness, cultivating a sense of kindness, of ease, of warmth, of befriending the body, befriending the mind, befriending your breathing. morning the wake up bell will be at 6.30 then it's sitting at 7 um, in the sitting period after breakfast um, we'll give a little bit more input about the practice, the, the practicalities of the practice um, I do hope that you rest well sleep well And uh, see you tomorrow.